Good morning. I want to thank our sponsors this morning for this week's Parsha class. Sponsor of this chus and Elias Neshama of Warner Fleischman, Benjamin Ben Mordechai Dov in the commemoration of his second Yurtzeit. And by Judy and Lester Henner in commemoration of the Yurtzeits of their beloved mothers, Peggy Wool and Mina Henner. And beloved grandmothers of Benji and Zelda Henner. And beloved great-grandmothers of Samantha, Rebecca, Evan and Jordan Henner. Thank you very much for your sponsorship and for your generosity. Okay, it's wonderful to spend uh, the Naya Yar together, the New Year. Someone shared with me the after of the Oiv Yisrael. In a very Hasidish approach, try to be Mikadish the Chol, to elevate the otherwise secular or mundane, actually embraced the idea of wishing one another a good year, a good year. In Rosh Hashanah, there's a Mekatrig when we celebrate the Jewish New Year. So because it's part of the Jewish calendar, it's our tradition. So there's an opposing opposite force trying to block us from the positive breakthrough resolution. So he suggested that this New Year is not a part of our tradition. So there is no opposing force. So if one is inspired or motivated or moved to take on resolutions or do good things, okay, who cares if you do that in Elul, you do that in January, as long as you stick with it and you do good things uh, as a result. So in that vein, a happy Naya Yor. <laughs> it's great to spend the first Parsha year of, uh, of 2019 together. And we do it studying Parsha's Vaira, page 318 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Got some great stuff, and we'll see if we can get through any of it. So as always, we'll begin with an overview of the Parsha, and then we're going to pick up with the Pesukim where we left off last year. Parsha's Vayera continues the conversation. There's a sort of tension that's developed between Moshe Rabbeinu and Hashem over his leadership. Rish Baruch has recruited him to be the leader, and Moshe continuously, his humility, he continues to hesitate, continues to resist, and he continues to also, to a degree, protest. In fact, some are bothered. His loyalty doesn't seem to be with Hashem. If the Almighty taps you and says, I have a mission, I have a charge, go accomplish it, go liberate, go free my people, you say, I'm all in, let's go. But instead, Moshe keeps arguing. So some suggest it's actually a reflection of Moshe's Avas Yisrael. It's not that Moshe is disloyal to Hashem. He's so loyal to the people that when he feels their pain and he hears their resistance, that's what he is communicating back. So our parsha begins. Kodesh Baruch Hu reveals himself. Kodesh Baruch Hu reminds Moshe, I revealed myself to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, your forefathers. Ushmi Hashem lo nadati but my name I didn't make known to them. And I have a uh, commitment. I'm going to give Eretz Kenan. I heard the cries, the na'akas, the groan of Klal Yisrael. Na'aka is one of the languages of tefillah. It's very interesting. Hashem says, I've been moved to act. I've shortened, I've reduced the sentence. It was supposed to be 400 years. It's down to 210. We're accelerating this process of liberation. I'm getting them out. Why? What is it that moved Hashem to begin, to kick in, to make that difference? He says, because I hear the cries of, I hear the cries of the Jewish people. The Alkut Shemoni quotes that there are 13 synonyms for prayer in Hebrew. Rina, Bitzur, Zaka, Naka, Pila. We have 13 synonyms through Tanakh that all describe the act of prayer. And the whole Sefer Sha'or and of Pincus is a wonderful Sefer. A chapter is devoted to each of these verbs and to communicate to us the differences between them. In English, we have one word prayer, to daven, Yiddish. But in Hebrew, there are different types of davening. There's a davening in a moment of joy and happiness and celebration. There's a davening in a moment of despair and sadness and loss. There's the davening of hope. And there's the davening of disappointment. There's all kinds of davening. There's not one word or one verb that we use to describe it. And so, the Torah has the 13 synonyms, and Rav Pincus opens our eyes to understand that not all prayers created equal, and different moments demand different types of prayers. And one of the synonyms that the Yalkut Shemoni quotes is Na'aka. And it's based partially on our Pasuk. That a Baruch says, I heard the Na'aka. What's a Na'aka? I've heard Na'aka's B'nai Yisrael. What is Na'aka's B'nai Yisrael? The groan. A groan is a form of davening? The answer is, to a certain degree, a groan is among the highest forms of davening. A krech, a kvetch, a groan. 
But it's not a groan, which is the groan of a complainer. It's not the groan of somebody who's seeking attention. It's not the groan of someone who's seeking sympathy. It's when a groan, a krecht, is channeled and directed towards Hashem, that's a form of tefillah. And it's to a certain degree even higher than a tefillah that has words. Because when a tefillah has words, a person is limited and bound by those words. The familiarity with the words, the comprehension of the words, the kavana and the concentration on the words. But when a person has a krecht, something is going on in life that moves and stimulates them to, to moan, to groan, to krecht. And they channel that, they direct that, they transform that into a form of tefillah to Hashem. That's an incredibly high and powerful form of prayer. So to a certain degree, Rapinkas talks about there. You know, if, if, you, if you stub your toe and it hurts and you yell, ouch, you might as well take that moment and the ouch be towards Hashem. That pain, that, the pain that, that precipitates a response, the response shouldn't be a wasted cry. When you yell, ouch, if you hurt yourself and no one's in the room, do you say ouch anyway? Do you only say ouch so the other people all say, oh, what's the matter? Are you okay? What do you need? What can I get you? Is the ouch to draw attention? Is the ouch to elicit sympathy? Or is the ouch the automated response to the feeling, to the experience of pain? So once you feel the ouch, you direct it, you channel it as a form of tefillah. And that's what a Kodesh Baruch Hu heard. The most authentic, the most genuine, the deepest place from which there's an authentic cry and call to Hashem comes from a place of a na'aka. So it wasn't the tefillah of the people with words, it was shamatias na'akas b'nei Yisrael. I heard the na'aka, I heard the, I heard the cries. Which also speaks to a big theme of these parashios and the experience of exile and the transition from exile to redemption. But Salavitchik writes it on the kind of different context when Moshe is hesitating and he says, Eich yishma'ini paravani aras vasayim how will Paro hear me? How will he listen to me? I have a speech impediment. I'm closed lips. Earlier at the burning bush, the Rav writes, Moshe argued he was heavy of tongue. Why do you seem to repeat the same argument here? This question is addressed by the Zohar. Moshe was then in the grade of voice, and the grade of utterance was in exile. Speech was in gullus. Hence he said, How will Paro hear me, seeing that my utterance is in bondage to him, I being only voice and lacking utterance? Therefore Hashem joined with him, Aaron, who was utterance without voice. When Moshe came, the voice appeared, but it was a voice without speech. This lasted until the Jewish people approached Hasinai to receive the Torah. The voice was united with utterance, and the word was spoken, as it says, and the Lord spoke all these words. Bondage is identified, writes the Rav, with the absence of both word and meaningful sound, with total silence. Redemption begins with finding sound, while the words still absent. Finally, with the finding of both sound and word, Redemption attains its full realization. A person is in their worst place when they're utterly silent, so beaten, so broken, in such despair and despondency that they just lie still. There's not even sound, there's no crack, there's no groan, there's nothing. There's nothing. So that's what it means that speech, sound, everything was in gullus, so broken, so hopeless and helpless. Before Moshe came, there was not even a single sound. No complaint was lodged, no cry uttered. The men kept quiet when they were mercilessly tortured by the slave drivers. Torture was taken for granted. They thought this was the way it had to be. The pain did not precipitate suffering. They were unaware of any need. When Moshe came, the sound or the voice came into being. Moshe, by defending the helpless Jew, restored sensitivity to the dull slaves. Suddenly realized that all the pain, anguish, humiliation, cruelty, all the greed and intolerance of man vis-a-vis his fellow man is evil. This realization brought in its wake not only sharp pain, but a sense of suffering. With suffering came protest, the cry, the unuttered question, the wordless demand for justice and retribution. The dead silence of non-existence was gone. The voice of human existence was now heard. Why hadn't they cried before Moshe acted? Why were they silent during the many years of slavery that preceded Moshe's appearance? They had lacked the need awareness and therefore experienced no need, whether for freedom, for dignity, and for painless existence. They did not rebel against reality. They lacked the tension that engenders suffering and distress. The voice was restored to them at the very instant they emotionally discovered their need awareness and became sensitive to pain in a human fashion. Moshe's protest precipitated this change. So Rebbe is developing this notion that when a person doesn't believe there can be a better reality, when a person feels stuck or locked 
in to their negative state, whether it's a challenge with illness or with family or with children or with parnasa, whether one is enslaved, encumbered to a literal taskmaster or to the taskmasters that we've self-imposed upon ourselves. But when a person lacks creativity, imagination, when you have no voice, when you have no voice, you're in the ultimate exile. When you're simply fatalistic to that reality, and you can't dream, you can't cry out, you can't protest, you can't even utter a krechts, a groan, a sound, you're in the ultimate exile. You're in the ultimate exile. That's why it's quoted from the Arizal. Everyone knows this, the holiday of Pesach. I hope nobody has PTSD just because I said the word. But the holiday of Pesach stands for, says the Arizal, Pesach is Pesach. The mouth speaks. Being enslaved meant the absence of the ability to speak. Part of the gift of our freedom is free speech. Sometimes misused, sometimes abused, sometimes used irresponsibly. But nevertheless, a gift of free speech. To be enslaved is to lack that ability not only to even speak, but even to the ability to krechs, even the ability to groan. That's why, not for now, maybe we'll elaborate another time, speech is so fundamental to the experience of Pesach. Kol amar Normally we endorse quiet. Mishnah Novo says, I learned the most when I was quiet, when I listened. We encourage people not to speak unless they have something to say. Revolba says, you know, we teach a child when they're young, we teach them to speak. A parent, a grandparent gets so excited. He said their first word. He said their first sentence. They communicated their first thought, their first need. We teach children how to speak. We never teach them how to stop talking. <laughs> Revolba points out, it's a fascinating pedagogic observation or insight. We teach, we applaud, we sit, we work, and we have a whole curriculum how to speak. But we don't spend as much time communicating to them the importance of stopping to talk. Stop talking. Just put a device in front of them, they'll stop talking to you verbally, but then they just you know, get it out a different way. But that, so normally we endorse the importance of quiet. But yet Pesach is all about You have to communicate. Why? Yerizal says Pesach. Because this is the yontif that celebrates freedom, and freedom is the ability to free speech, to speak freely, to communicate, to share our feelings and our thoughts and our aspirations and our dreams and our disappointments and our hopes. Pesach, the mouth has the ability to speak. So what precipitated, what was the catalyst that actually launched the earliest stage of the redemption? Kashborch himself says, Shamati es na'akas Yisrael. Nobody got up and gave a dissertation. It wasn't the phenomenal drusha. Nobody wrote an amazing article. What was it that precipitated, that launched the experience of Geula? Naka. It was a krechts. It was a groan. Now again, not a self-centered, woe is me, give me sympathy, everyone pay attention to me kind of groan. We're very good at those. But it was a groan that was channeled and directed into, it was transformed and delivered as a form of tefillah. A naka. I'm krechsing, I'm groaning to you, Hashem. I don't even have the words. I can't put into words what I need from you. I can't put into words my condition. All I could do is groan. It comes from the innermost place, the most authentic communication of where I am and how I feel and how desperately I need you. Naka is also a form of tefillah. Pesach, that was the beginning of freedom. The first taste of freedom was not an articulate, eloquent monologue, soliloquy. It wasn't the delivery of some oratory speech. The beginning of redemption was a krechts. How did it all begin? With a krechts. The next time someone criticizes you for krechtsing, say, I'm bringing gula to the world. What do you want from me? <laughs> I'm changing the world. Beginning of the parasha. Remember I said we're going to get through such great stuff. Okay, we've got to move a little bit. So, oy. It's a crux. I was directed to Hashem to make time go slower. Okay, so the beginning of the parsha also has the Dal the Shonos of Geula. We've spent time on the past, this in the past. You can't learn Parshas Vair and not spend time on the Dal the Shonos of Geula, the four languages of redemption. The four languages of redemption... The four languages of redemption are represented at our Seder table with a mitzvah de Rabbanon, a rabbinic commandment, 
What do we do at the Seder table to commemorate the four languages of redemption? The Dalad Kosos, the four cups of wine. Tosos in the 10th parak of Sachem brings a few opinions, but that's one of them, that the four cups of wine correspond with, they represent the four languages of Geula. I think we spent time last year or two years ago, which we won't repeat, there is a fifth language of Geula. What's the fifth language? Vehevesi. I will bring you. We know the four languages. There's a fifth language, Vehevesi, I will bring you. Rav Menachem Kasher in his Haggadah Shlema, who wrote an introduction. I've shared this before. He wrote an introduction to his Torah Shlema back when he was still in Europe, when the Holocaust was beginning to unfold, when he saw, and he describes what, what we're going through now is worse than what the Jews endured in Mitzrayim. And our hope is bleak. Our future is bleak. And he writes in the introduction to one of the volumes of Torah Shlem, an early edition, that our hope is bleak. What we're going through now, I think in the introduction to Sefer Shmos, what we're going through now is worse than the oppression, the persecution, the suffering. The future is more bleak than it was in Mitzrayim. And then his Haggadah Shlema, he writes a whole essay. Now he merits to survive and live through the founding of the State of Israel. And he says, we've lived through the fulfillment of the Hevesi. We need to introduce the fifth cup to the, to the Seder. Some suggest the coast of Eliyahu corresponds with the Hevesi. Maybe something else, a lot of suggestions. But Rav Menachem Kasher suggests it, and the Rabbanut ultimately rejects it. It does not catch on in Israel. But his essay is very compelling, that we're meriting to live through the time of the Hevesi where the fifth language of Geula has been brought back to the land of Israel, Jewish sovereignty over our land, the capacity to protect and defend ourselves. And he says we need to drink a fifth cup of Evesi. That essay in itself is extraordinary, but when you contrast that essay with the introduction to Torah Shleim Sefer Shmos, the same author, the same individual, who lived both through the horrific atrocity and then experienced the miraculous freedom and the great blessing and gift of the modern miracle of the modern state of Israel, you contrast the two essays, it's amazing. I think on Why You Torah, we, I think I taught a class about Rav Menachem Kasher in the people of the book. I think we talked about it there and in the parsha in the past. We've also shared Rav Asher Weiss's Shaila, why you're allowed to interrupt between certain two cups and not other cups, and we've given his answer. But I want to bring a few new interpretations that I don't believe we discussed previously to the Dal of the Shonas of Gula, the four cups, and you should all be scribbling ferociously so you have Divrei Torah for your Seder table which will be upon us before you even know. Get an extra month here. There's two Adars. So you don't have to start cleaning just yet. Maybe next week. But you have an extra month. You have an extra month to be able to, cl- to, be able to clean. So, what's incredible about these Dalv Lashonas of Geula is that redemption in the Torah is not described as a linear act. It's not a moment of time. It's not, for one moment, they're enslaved, persecuted, beaten, Children brutally murdered, and boom, Kashbarch blinks and snaps his fingers, and a moment later we're free. There is a development, an evolution. It's not linear. There are four Lishonos of Geula, four separate languages of redemption corresponding with four separate phases or chapters. The Yerushalmi goes so far as to say, not Dalad Lishonos, the Yerushalmi says, Arba Geulos. There are four redemptions. It's not four ways of describing the one redemption, but there are four separate experiences of redemption. And on Seder night, we don't commemorate the single miracle of going from slaves to free people with one cup of wine, but Rashi and the Rashbam, as we said, both quote that the four cups of wine represent not four descriptions of Gula. I love one of my things in public speaking synonyms. Anyone who hears my drusha knows I like to do strings of two or three synonyms. I don't know where I got that from, but I like it. So the four Lashonas are not four synonyms of Geula. It's not that the Torah is trying to impress you with four synonyms for Geula. According to the Yerushalmi, these are four distinct, separate redemptions. Experiences, stages of redemption. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar and the Svorno lay out a timeline about how they happen. They say the Odsesi refers to Hashem freed us from the backbreaking labor. We continue to be slaves, but Vehotsesi means that the forced labor was withdrawn from us. That took place at the beginning of the plagues. When Paro started to experience the plagues, Vehotsesi, he withdrew the backbreaking labor. The second stage is Vehitsalti, when we were no longer under the control of the dominion of Egypt. It took place after Makas Bechoros, after the final of the ten plagues. We were still in Egypt. 
but we were no longer slaves. Karpara said, I'm done, I've had it, I can't take it, you are free to go, though we had not yet geographically left. Now they were free from work and bondage, they were liberated from the status of slaves or from being prisoners, but we still risked being pursued or being chased by our enemies. Third stage, Vega'alti, say Rabbi Nebachi and the Svarno occurs, only Vega'alti when? When they stood on the banks of the sea and they saw the sea close in on the Egyptians and they drowned, that's when they were obliterated, when they were destroyed, when the threat was eliminated, that was Vega'alti. And of course, Vela'kakti Eschem Lila'am is when? Harsina, when we stood at the base of the mountain and Hashem gave us the Torah, that was the fulfillment of Vela'kakti. And the question is, why was the third stage of Iga'alti necessary? I understand that there's an experience of redemption when you have forced labor, back-breaking labor, and all of a sudden the labor is lifted. You're not obligated. That's, a, that's an experience of redemption. Day off from work. Some of you have a day off from work today. A day off from work is Vautesi. You've been extracted, you've been removed from the obligation of work. I got that. The second stage, I also understand to lose your status as slaves, for power to say, good to go, you're free to leave whenever you like, we're done, I can't take it anymore. I got it. Vilakakti, I understand. We were transformed to a new people when he gave us the Torah. But Vigalti, when we saw the Egyptians drown, what experience of redemption? We were already done doing work, and we had already lost our identity and status as slaves. So what was achieved or accomplished? Where was the redemption in that third stage of Vigalti? You understand the question? Good. So Rav Hanach Shiva of Chafetz Chaim explains that the third stage might have in fact been the most important stage. Why? He says because a group of slaves who've been, it's all they've known for 210 years, has embedded deep within them a slave mentality. And sometimes it takes longer to be liberated or freed from the slave mentality than it does to even be liberated from being slaves. Physically they were free, but psychologically they remained enslaved to the fear and worry that their former masters might pursue them, might imprison them, might chase after them, might reinstate their slavery. In other words, they didn't see themselves yet as free men. They saw themselves as free slaves. Free for the moment, but still with a slave mentality and at risk of being returned to being slaves again. So Rav Hanach Libot explains that even that fourth stage of Lakakti, receiving the Torah, wouldn't have been enough to get them to stop looking over their shoulder. Even having the Torah and living Torah wouldn't have been enough to relieve the anxiety, the worry, the fear that the Egyptians might chase them and might enslave them once again. Only seeing the Egyptians, only seeing their taskmasters obliterated, eliminated, only seeing them gone was enough to help them turn the page and psychologically free themselves from seeing themselves as stuck, as locked in, as potentially the slave mentality. The first two terms of redemption, the first two cups of wine correspond with physical freedom and liberty, and Vigaalti, that third cup, corresponds with the breaking free of the psychological shackles that impose us. We may not have the first two. We may not be technically Baruch Hashem. We're not slaves physically, and we're not a forced labor cast upon us, but Vigaalti, that experience, that stage, that redemption, we still very, very, very much are in need of. Psychologically bound, mentally enslaved, different people to different things. It could be to feelings of insecurity or inferiority or inability. Others are looking over their shoulders, enslaved to worrying about what other people think of them on the right, on the left, in their family, at work, in their community. Others are enslaved by food, by substances, by work, by shopping. Some are enslaved by pop culture, by devices and technology. But that's the viga'alti, that notion of the ability to break free from the slave mentality, from the mentality that says you're stuck. This is who you are, this is your life. And maybe you have a temporary reprieve. Maybe it's been lifted for the moment, but it's only temporary. It's going to come back. In fact, in our parsha, the Pasuk in our parsha describes astonishingly that when Moshe and Aaron come, Hashem says, you have to offer a command to let the people go. And to whom is the command directed? 
Certainly it's directed to Paro. He is in fact their, their uh, taskmaster. But to whom else is it directed? To the Jewish people themselves. By el b'nei Yisrael. The people needed Sivui. Wake up! Take control of your destiny. Break out of your habits. Overcome your anxiety, your fear, your worry. Release yourself from your self-imposed shackles to realize and determine and become who you can, who you can be. It's appropriate, again, go back to the Aptarov. People make New Year's resolutions this time of year. It's not our New Year's. And on our New Year's we experience it very differently than most of you who stayed up late last night partying. We experience Rosh Hashanah that was a joke. We experienced Rosh Hashanah. Very different. Obviously, maybe it wasn't such a joke. Okay, I hope you enjoyed. We experienced our Rosh Hashanah very, very differently. Very differently. But how is it that we're able to become the best version of ourselves to grow? How can we make those resolutions stick? We do when we see ourselves as the arbiter of our own destiny. When we don't feel enslaved by the very thing that we're trying to free ourselves from. We have to mentally have a different, a different view. Bisalavechik and a Truva Drasha he gave in 1974, a very auspicious year. The Rav applied a brisker lumdus uh, analysis to uh, more personal growth. Right? In brisker lumdus, you often distinguish between Chefza and Gavra. You look at a mitzvah and you try to understand is it a din in the Chefza or is it a din in the Gavra? Is it a din in the object or is it a din in the perp- person? Is it a din in the tzitzis or a chiv in the person wearing the tzitzis? Is it the chefza or is it the gavra? So Bersalavitchik said this notion of chefza, an object, or a gavra, a person, also represents two different approaches or perspectives on life. Human beings have the potential to be either an object or a subject. If your life is on autopilot, if you're a creature, a habit, or rope, if you're molded and shaped by society, if you're enslaved to pop culture or to whatever it is that is your persecutor, your taskmaster, you're an object. You're an object that's being acted upon. But when we're opposite, when we're mindful, we're spiritually conscious, when we're driven, then we're subjects. Then we are in control of our own lives. Bersalavitchik pointed out, it's not a coincidence, the Torah always uses the language, when a person fails, the Torah uses the language that they fall. Why does it describe somebody has fallen? If a person makes a mistake, they have indiscretion, they show poor judgment, they have fallen. Why does the Torah use the language of they've fallen? So Basalovich said, because at that moment the person has chosen to become be an object, not a subject. A subject overcomes gravity. I can lift something up. As a subject, I overcome gravity. I dictate and I drive my life. But an object is exposed to gravity. An object falls. So what happens when a person makes a mistake, has poor judgment, violates a, what we call a chait, a sin, so they have fallen? Because they've allowed themselves to be an object and they allow themselves to be brought down. They allow themselves to, to fall. And that's really the question of this fifth, third language of Viga'alti. Is can we free ourselves from the mentality, from the psyche, that we're not in control, that we're objects? Viga'alti means I'm stuck feeling I'm an object. I can't lose weight. I can't exercise because of my genetics. I can't be healthy because I'm big boned. I can't be whatever because... Are we an object? I can't be patient because it's just who I am. I'm a Kohen, I'm a Sephardi, I come from this family, we lose our cool very quickly, that's just who I am. When a person turns themselves or sees themselves as an object, they need, a, they need an experience, a gu'ula of viga'alti, to see that you can be a subject, to break free from that mentality and to break free from that position and perspective of feeling, of feeling stuck. In fact, to a certain degree, that's the purpose of the makos. The makos are a curriculum. They're to educate. According to some perspectives, it's to educate paro. If we ever get to our psukim, we'll see the kliyakar says that. Paro has three theological objections to submitting to Hashem. So Hashem says, no problem. You don't think I'm here. You don't think I'm in control. You don't think I can manipulate nature. Paro has three distinct objections. Hashem says, okay, I'll answer all three, but I'm not going to answer them verbally. I'm going to answer, I'm going to teach you experientially. You're going to experience just how in control I am. But others suggest that the curriculum of the Makos is not for Paro, it's not for the Mitzrim. What does that Kiddush Baruch Hu care? If Paro wants to be an agnostic, an atheist, a pagan, who cares? What does Hashem care? 
To whom is the curriculum designed? For whom? For the Jewish people. Why do they need a curriculum to know there's Hashem, He's in control, we can control our own life. Why do we need that curriculum? Why do we need that lesson plan? Why do we need to see it in action? Why do we need to experience that just because it's been one way for 210 years doesn't mean it has to be stuck that way. Why did we need that? Because we were stuck. We were stuck and locked into a certain mentality. And so we needed to be freed. We needed to be freed from that mentality. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to come and he had to offer, he had to offer this Vayitzavim. The command was not just a paro. The command was to the Jewish people themselves. Not to be resigned in our attitude. Not to be fatalistic. Not to assume it was one way this way, that therefore that's all the way. Not to be objects, but to transform ourselves into being subjects. How do you do that? I saw a study in the Journal of Consumer Research. I don't subscribe to it. I googled and found a study in the Journal of Consumer Research. 120 students were divided into two groups. One instructed to respond to facing temptation with the words, I can't. And the others with the words, I don't. If offered ice cream, members of the group one were taught, you say... I can't eat ice cream. And when the second group was given the same temptation, they were told to say, I don't eat ice cream. Each group repeated the phrase over and over. And then they were given a questionnaire to fill out that in truth had nothing to do with the study. It was just to distract them. And after turning it in, on their way out, they were offered a complimentary treat. So the 120 students, they broke them into two groups. And one they had practiced, they didn't tell them the purpose of the study, obviously. So one they had practiced the refrain over and over, I can't. And the other they had practiced the refrain over and over and over and over, I don't. Then they had them fill out a questionnaire that had nothing to do with anything, just to throw them off what the study was about. And on the way out, oh, thank you for filling out the questionnaire. Would you like an ice cream? Would you like a candy bar or a health bar? The study found the following. Those who said, I can't eat, X, the ice cream, the chocolate, chose the candy bar 61% of the time. And those who said, I don't, chose the candy bar only 36% of the time. And the researchers concluded that the very terminology that we use influences our will and our discipline and our self-control. How do we see ourselves? As an object or a subject? I can't means I'm an object. I can't. I have diabetes. I have high blood pressure. I'm afraid of my wife or my mother. Or I got to fit into the whatever clothing we had before my daughter's recent wedding, the Goldberg family, we were shedding for the wedding. That was the <laughs> bumper sticker in our house. So I can't, I can't, I'm an object, I can't. When you can't, it's very disempowering. You're an object and what do you end up doing? You have two ice creams. But if you say, I don't, what you're saying is I, it's pasta, I don't, I don't eat that stuff. I don't, I, I choose, I'm a subject. I'm not an object. I'm making the choice not to. And that is the experience of freeing ourselves from that slave mentality, that fatalistic mentality, not to believe that we have no free will, not to believe that we have no choice. That's Rav Hanach's insight, Viga'alti. Why was Viga'alti necessary? Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu have to show them slave? To break out of that slave mentality and to break out. I'll give you one last insight on this because I love quoting an Imre Chaim, the vision of Tzarebbe. I once quoted another Imre Chaim on Va'ira, which we won't have time to get back to now. But I'll tell you another, another uh, Imre Chaim. It says, That's what it means. The Jewish people, Moshe comes, and he bears this wonderful message. 210 years. Your family members have been murdered. They're dying. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to take you out. It's all over. You're free to go. And you know what they say? Get out of here. We got work to do. They didn't listen to Moshe. So years pass. We quoted the Orachai Makadosh, who says, Kotzaruch means exactly this. Rashi says Kotzaruch means they were out of breath. Out of breath. We spoke last week. So busy, 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 doing, 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 working, working, working. Out of breath. Who has time to breathe? If you don't have time to breathe, you don't have time to dream. You don't have time to visualize. You don't have time to be a subject. If you're so busy, 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 being an object. But the Orachai says Kotzaruch, Ruach means like, Ruach, a spirit. How is the Ruach in camp? How is the Ruach on the Shabbaton? We've got Ruach, yes we do. Mikotza Ruach, it was Katsar. They had no vision. They couldn't even dream of a better or a brighter future. So why does that happen? So listen to the, listen to the vision of the Rebbe, the Imre Chaim. He says, Lo shamu Moshe, lo misasvim el Moshe el The word Shamu means to gather around. V'loboi may love. And why didn't they come listen to the Tzadik? Kotzeruch means they were such underachievers spiritually 
Kotza Ruach, Ruach is Ruchnias. They had no spiritual ambition or drive. They were spiritual underachievers. Why were they such spiritual underachievers? Me'avodah kasha. Miyosam mishukayim kasha ba'avodasam shalchol. When you're so busy making the next dollar and working so hard and needing to achieve and needing to keep up, me'avodah kasha. When you're avodah, when you're so hard at work, then you're kotza ruach, you cut yourself short in the ruchnias. If you're working too hard in the gashmias and you don't have any energy left, any vision left to be able to achieve the ruchnis. That's his first pshat. Second pshat he says is, Mikotza ruach shemekatsrim binyani ruchnis. They cut short. They cut short the ruchnis. Uh, the movie, I'll watch three of them in a row. I'll binge watch Netflix the whole night long. But davening, I gotta leave after 20 minutes. I'm going crazy. I can't. Uh, you come late, you leave early. Chazan went 30 seconds too long. Not for me. I can't listen. I'm out of here. Kotza ruach. Cut short. Kotza ruach means... When it comes to ruchnius, when it comes to the spiritual things, you cut it short. Why? The avoda of kashas. Why do you have to have a chazan who goes so long? Why does the speech have to be? And why do you have this? And why does Judaism have that? And you come up with all kinds of kashas that are in fact not kashas, the terutzim. The terutzim to the fact that kotzeruch, you want to get out of there. You want to cut the ruchnius, katsar short. So you ask all kinds of avoda kasha, you do such an avoda ashen kasha ashen kushius. There's a beautiful insight of the homiletically, obviously, of the vision of Tzurebbe of the avoda kasha. One last insight on the Dal of the Shonas of Geula. And then we'll get to the Psukim I wanted to look at today. The last insight of the Dal of the Shonas of Geula. So we quote in the Dal of the Shonas of Geula, Rav Menachem Kasher, on the fifth Lashon, Rav Hanach Libowitz, why do we need Vigaalti, Rav Asher Weiss, to break in between the two. We have to see ourselves as subjects, not as objects. One last insight from the Meshachachma. The Gishmak Meshachachma. Meshachachma here on our Psukim says the following. If the Dal Lashonos of Geula are represented at the Seder by the four cups, the Arbakosos are the manifestation, or they are where we reference the four Geulas, the four languages of Geula, or the four Geulas at the Seder, then we should take a closer look to see how they line up. Right? So the first Lashon Vautzesi is... What's the first cup? It's not a trick question. Such an aversion to talking about Pesach here. I told you, you get an extra month. Vautzesi corresponds with the first cup. Which is the first cup? Kiddush. It was not a trick question. You're not going to get in trouble. The first cup is Kiddush. What is the connection? Rabbi Meir Simcha goes through the whole thing. I have it here. Is Meshach Chochma? Dal the Kosos can I get Dal Lashonos Gula? But it says if you tell to be Galta Lakhti, Kos Rishon Kiddush, the Yisrael Mekadshel Asmanim, Kamo Shomer Achodesh is Alachem. You and your Shami Rosh Hashanah veEmas like Shem Kedoshim. But Samach Kedoshim to you La Arayos. She bechomokom Shatamotzi Geder Erev Atamotzi Kedusha. Gedolim in Malachi Ashar Shnebahem Shtei Kedushos Shem Mekadshem as Asmanim Lachen Kshayu Gorim in Arayos Mitzrayim Lachen Yitachen Veotzesi Shem Lokin Eich Yochol Otzi Bnei Nachrius Kamosa. And so on. And so on. The Meshachachma, we don't have time now, it's a great exercise for your Seder table. But the Meshachachma goes through and he says, line up the four languages with each of the four cups and try to find the connection. What does Votsesi have to do with Kiddush? What does Vitsalti have to do with the second cup? What does Vigaalti have to do with the third cup? And what does the Lakakti have to do with the fourth cup? The placement in the Seder and the theme over which we say each of those cups, what does it have to do with the description of that language of Gula? So your homework is to do cups two, three, and four. I'll do cup one with you. Says Rameer Simcha, we just read it. What does Votsesi have to do with? The first cup is? Kiddush. Kiddush. What does Votsesi have to do with Kiddush? I'll take them out. We drink it with Kiddush. What's the connection? Says Rameer Simcha, Egypt, Mitzrayim, was the capital of moral depravity, of decadence of immorality, of promiscuousness, of corruption. See, those are my synonym addiction. It lacked modesty, there was no purity, there was no spirituality. Egypt was... They literally worshipped the Nile. They bowed to a physical entity, which itself was the source of nourishment and well-being. And says Rav Tzadok, HaKohen of Lublin, the Nile overflowed. What is the image that the Nile overflowed? Says Rav Tzadik, it means that the Gashmias overflowed the normal boundaries that are supposed to hold it in place. We believe in Gashmias. Enjoy a delicious meal, wear nice clothing, live in a fine home, 
we can enjoy and indulge. Shabbos, Yontif is all about enjoying and indulging. The Simcha of Yontif is a mitzvah. Buy a new dress or jewelry, uh, meat and wine, toys for the children. These are all physical entities. We enjoy and we indulge in the physical as long as it has boundaries. It has Gedorah. Those boundaries give it a context, give it an appropriateness, appropriateness, transform it to be an elevating experience. Says Rav Tzadok, the Nile overflowed means, the Nile, the symbol of the Gashmias of Mitzrayim, overflowed and overran the boundaries of appropriateness. There were no limits. There were no restrictions on their behavior, on their conduct. There was no sense of ever saying no. There was no no. In Mitzrayim, is this sound starting to sound familiar? In Mitzrayim, if you had an impulse, if you had a drive, if you had an appetite or a temptation, there was no no. Just do it. Obey your thirst. Whatever makes you happy. These are our slogans. Nike, just do it. Sprite, obey your thirst. Whatever makes you happy. In Mitzrayim, whatever made you happy, there were no boundaries. Overflow the boundaries. Just pursue your happiness. There was no, there were no boundaries of appropriateness. There was no context. There was no no. I saw a beautiful pshat. I forgot where. Several months ago. Kodesh Baruch when he is waxing nostalgic for the period of when we followed him out into the desert. He took us out of Mitzrayim and then we followed him out. And he says, Zacharti lachesed neurayach. I remember the chesed of your... I remember where I saw it when I was putting together this uh, booklet that I, uh, that I put out. Avas Klulosayach. In Elul time, Sa'avas Klulosayach. I remember the loving time of when you were a bride. Lech tech acharai bamidbar. You followed me out in the desert. Be'eretz Lozerua. To a land that was desolate. Lozerua, it had not been planted. So I saw a beautiful pshat. Again, I'll pidrush. It's certainly not the pshat. Why is HaKadosh Baruch who feel this love and affection for the Jewish people? What did the Jewish people demonstrate that the Egyptians failed to? They followed Hashem, we followed Hashem, Be'eretz, to a land, Lo Zerua. It was Zerua with the word Lo. It was a land that was planted with nose, with boundaries. HaKadosh Baruch who said, yes, 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 but you also need to know, no, no, no. There are limits, there are boundaries, there's no. The Mitzram were unwilling to hear the word no. Whatever the appetite, whatever the temptation, they had to satisfy, they had to indulge. We followed Hashem. What makes Hashem feel such love and affection for us? We followed Him, Be'eretz, Lo, Zarua. It was a land, Zarua, with Lo. It was a land that was planted with the idea of Lo, the capacity to have boundaries and the capacity to say no. Says Rameir Simcha, going back to the Meshachachma, to make Kiddush is to achieve Kedusha. How do you achieve Kedusha? How do you make Kiddush? Only when you're willing to, Vehotsesi. You have to have the courage and the conviction and the resolve to elevate and extract from dangerous and destructive morals and standards that surround you. When you're willing to transcend the culture around you, when you're willing to overcome that everyone else has no boundaries. And Vahotsesi, you extract yourself from that lifestyle. You extract yourself from those values. When Vahotsesi, that's when you make Kiddush. That's when you make Kiddush. So, I don't know whether our world is more or less morally depraved than Egypt or Sodom, but we are also living in a world with increasingly fewer and fewer boundaries. Do, say, go, dress, act, behave, identify however, wherever, whatever you want. No one is entitled to impose their boundaries. God forbid to suggest there should even be boundaries. You are, you are, I mean, it's just a bizarre world. Everyone saw the story last week or two weeks ago. A girl of Hanukkah hung in her window at college. Nazis are unwelcome here. And who was forced to leave? The neo-Nazis with their message of hate from the college? Everybody saw the story? The college forced her to take the sign out of the window because it was unfriendly to Nazis who might want to visit the campus. It's just we're living in an upside down and backwards world. I have to be friendly to everybody. There's just no boundaries. There's no limits. What's appropriate? If it was a racist person, racists aren't welcome here, they'd make, they'd make billboards all over the campus. But just anti-Semites and Nazis, they have to be welcome. We have to be friendly to them. We have to be friendly to them too. So I don't know if we're living in a more morally depraved society than it was in Egypt or Sodom, but Vehotsesi. If we are to achieve Kedusha, the only way to achieve Kedusha is when you're willing to Vehotsesi, when you're willing to extract yourself, to transcend, 
to not be defined or not to buy into whatever the culture or society is saying just because that's the society we're living in. We have to be willing to vehotsesi, to extract ourselves. This was the other Imre Chaim, the other vision of Tzarebbe. Is the Pasuk says, Moshe's coming to redeem them and take them, mitacha sivlos mitzrayim. To redeem them from sivlos. What are sivlos? The burdens, the suffering. Does that sound familiar to another word? If I'm in Israel and you're bugging me and I'm trying to tell you, how do you translate this? Savlanut, nu. Savlanut. Have some savlanut. So Revolba has a whole connection between sivlos and savlanut, which is for another time. has to do with what patience is. Patience is being willing to suffer the burden of being patient. That's what patience is, being burdened by having to wait. Sivlos and savlanut. But that's for another time. But Rav Meir, the Imre Chaim, Rav Chaim Meir of Vision, it says, mitacha sivlos means the redemption comes through reaching a place of being disgusted and repulsed by the degradation and defilement of Egypt. When you no longer have sivlos, the savlanut for the culture of Mitzrayim, that's when you're on your way to being redeemed. When you no longer have patience for the corruption and moral depravity, mitacha sivlos, mitacha savlanut. You, the Jews, for 210 years, you've just been satisfied with blending in. For 210 years, you've been satisfied with your condition. You've been patient in enduring whatever is cast upon you, in subscribing to whatever those around you believe. When you're willing to vaotsesi, when you're willing to extract yourself, mitacha sivlos, from the savlanut, when you'll extract yourself from your patiently enduring what's going on around you, and that's how achieved. So which cup is that said with? That's said with Kiddush. Because how do you achieve Kiddush? How do you achieve Kedusha? Only Vehotsesi. You're not going to live a sanctified, sacred, holy life when you are entirely marinating in a culture that's foreign to ours. And that's what this period of the year is all about. Also, Pasuk says in Yirmi, in Yirmiyahu, Shuvu Banim Shovavim. And the Arizal gave us a tradition that the word Shovavim, Shuvu Banim Shovavim, Return, sons, Shovavim is an acronym. Shmoz Vaira Bo Beshalach Yisro Mishpatim. And since his time, the 42 days that we read those parshios, Shovavim, Shmoz Vaira Bo Beshalach Yisro Mishpatim, Shovavim are a time of trying to make Kiddush, of trying to achieve Kedusha, to sanctify ourselves, to elevate ourselves, to be able to teach the world that not anything goes. Be'eretz Lo Zarua, to teach the world the meaning of Lo that there are boundaries and there's context and there's appropriateness and that you can't get to a place of Kedusha until the Hotseisi, until you extract yourself from being saturated in, in that uh, culture which is foreign to our own. Okay, I really blew it this week, but we're going to just at least start to look at a few Pesukim. Perak Zayim Pasuk Yedalit. We didn't even finish the overview, but you all know the Parsha. Perak Zayim, chapter 7, Pasuk 14. This is where we left off last year. This is why in Mir Tashem it'll take 120 years just to get through five psukim in this parshish year. Vayom HaShem HaMoshe Kaved Leiv Paro Me'ein L'Shalach Ha'am Perek Zayin Pasuk 14 HaShem says to Moshe Paro's heart is stubborn. He's refusing to send the people. And of course we don't have the time now to develop but we all know that this is one of the overarching major questions of these whole sedras. What happened to free will? Doesn't Ashkosh Baruch Hu endow the world with free will? What does it mean that he keeps suspending Paro's free will? What kind of world does he suspend? Does he suspend Paro's free will? And here too is a reference to it of Kfad Leif. Look at the Svarnam. How great is Hashem intervening, interfering with Paro's free will? Even though Paro just witnessed, that's where we're picking up the Sukkim. Paro just witnessed that his magicians and sorcerers can't compete with you, Moshe, that you represent me, Hashem, I'm really the one in control, despite seeing the categorical difference between the limits on his magicians and sorcerers and Hashem's limitlessness, despite that difference, nevertheless, Paro's stubbornness, or that Hashem has hardened his heart, he continues to be stubborn and to refuse to let the Jewish people 
So he refused to let them go. So we're ready to start. First plague. You ready? First of the plagues. Hashem says to Moshe, Go to Paro in the morning. He's going out to the water. And go stand by the bank of the river when he gets there. You know that staff, the one that you turned it into a snake? Bring the staff with you. Bring it with you. And when he arrives at the Nile, which he will every morning, you tell him, the God of the Hebrews has sent me. And he has a message. Send out his people so they can serve God in the desert. And he has not heard until now. He's not listened until now. When he won't listen, you tell him. This is how you know that I'm God. You're going to touch the staff. That's why I told you to bring it in the water and transform it into blood. And the fish in the river will die and the river will become disgusting. And Egypt will go weary. They won't be able to drink from the river. They'll have no source of their, of their water. And that is the first, that's the instruction for the first plague. Why does Hashem send Moshe and Aaron to the river? Why is the first plague at the Nile? Why is Hashem so confident that Paro is going to arrive there? How does he know Paro is coming there? So Rashi tells us, he goes to the river every morning. The Nekavav. He gets his Wall Street Journal, his New York Times, and he heads to the Nile to take care of his business. He wakes up in the morning, the person has to relieve themselves. So he goes down to the river. He tells all of his citizens, I'm a God. I'm a deity. You should worship me. Well, gods don't need to call time out to go to the bathroom. So how is he going to relieve himself? Because in the end of the day, he is a human being. He's got to relieve himself. How's he going to relieve himself? So where does he go to the Nile? And he has a private section, a private area, and he has space to relieve himself so he can maintain this illusion that he's a deity to the Egyptians, but still take care of his basic human need. Those who listen to the Siddur snippets, we send out a six-minute insight on the Siddur every day. So we did Asher Yatsar, Bechachma. What was that word? Hashem creates us Bechachma with wisdom. We shared four or five different interpretations. Is it Hashem's wisdom? Is it man's wisdom? What's the wisdom? So one of the interpretations is Busha hi chachma. Wisdom is shame. The capacity to feel shame brings a sense of humility. It keeps us humble. And that's why going to the bathroom is the great equalizer. You could have a billion dollars, you could be on Tom Shabbos. You could be a Nobel Prize physicist, the most brilliant man on earth. You can be a fool who's illiterate. It doesn't matter how rich, how smart. It is the great equalizer. Every human being, when you gotta go, you gotta go. And there's nothing more humbling than when you gotta go. When you gotta go. Have you ever been on a plane taking off, landing, and you gotta go, and you can't go then, and you're waiting 10,000 feet, and it doesn't wait for anybody. Nobody davens. You talk about a naka. You talk about davening, the groan that comes, the most sincere form of tefillah in the world, is when you gotta go, and you're not near a place that you can go. So what does that do? You could have a gazillion dollars. You could be the most brilliant person. You could be the most beautiful supermodel. It doesn't matter who you are. It humbled. That was the chachma. That was the pshat. The chachma that Hashem created us was. He said, everyone's going to be different. And everyone's going to be endowed with different gifts and talents and blessings. And how am I going to keep you all humble? You're going to all have to go. And that's going to keep everyone equal. And remind everyone that nobody's better than anyone else. Because everyone's got to go. So that's the Chochmah of Asher Yatsar. So Paro, Paro, experienced that Chochmah too. He had to go. Every morning, in fact. So where did he go? He went down to the Nile. And now you understand, that's why Kodesh Baruch Hu sends Moshe and Aaron specifically to catch him there. Why? They, intercede, they, they receive him there because he's on his way to the Nile. They're basically calling him out. You may be fooling yourself. You're not fooling us. We know why you're here. You're no God. We represent the real God who never has to go. And we're here to tell you. He said, send his people out. So the, you have to understand the, the message, even before they open their mouth and say any words, 
The fact that they're calling him out in his place of greatest vulnerability, in the place of his kryptonite, where he maintains this illusion among the whole rest of the nation that he's some god or deity, but Moshe and Aaron show up where he's not, where he's just like everyone else. There are different interpretations. The Rashbam says, The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, doesn't reference his gastrointestinal needs, but references that the Sarim, the, the, the royalty, aristocracy, they go for a stroll in the morning. They have their latte, their caramel grande latte, and they go for a stroll. So Paro's going for a stroll along the Nile. And that's where Moshe and Aaron interrupt his pleasant stroll to deliver the message, it's time to let the people, it's time to let the people go. The Ibn Ezra has a third interpretation. Says the Ibn Ezra, Until today, the time of Rav Avram Ibn Ezra in the medieval times, the custom in Egypt was to go out in the months of Tammuz and Av. I don't know, July, August. Because what happens to the Nile that time of year? It rises. That's your stock market. That's your portfolio. You want to know how well you're going to do that year? You go check the Nile to see whether it's risen or it's fallen. The Nile is very low right now. So Ibn Ezra says, that's where they're interfering with Paro. Forget his personal bathroom needs. They're going to catch him when he's going to check in on the economy of Egypt. He's going to see what's the level of the Nile. How well are we going to do this year? How deep are our pockets? Catch him before and say, you think that you're... You think that the economy, you think the financial world depends on the Nile? We're here to represent Hashem. It depends on Hashem and He's got a message for you. And if you don't heed His message, we're going to smack this river and it's going to turn into blood. In other words, we're going to smack the stock market. We're going to knock down the economy. The whole economy of Egypt depends not on the rainfall, but rather on the Nile. You went to go check on the height of the Nile. You want to see what kind of rain it's gotten this year. Everything flows into the Nile. How high is it? So we're here to tell you, God's got a message. And if you don't listen, say goodbye to the economy. Because the Gosh is about to take away your Nile, which is the driver of the whole Egyptian economy. Bring that staff and let Paro see that all it takes is touching the staff to the water and the whole thing turns into blood. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Why is Aaron the one who does it, not Paro? So we saw three interpretations. Why is Hashem standing there? Be there when Paro gets there. It's very meduyuk in the psukim. It makes sense. It's not just go and do the Nile into... You can go to the palace and tell Paro in the palace that if he doesn't let him go, all the water is going to turn to blood. Why do you have to dafka meet him at the Nile? But now we understand. You're either meeting him because you're calling him out on his bluff. He's a human being. He needs the bathroom. In a moment of embarrassment, shame, humiliation, you're catching him on the great equalizer of all human beings. Or the economy, this is the symbol. I want you to be on the floor of the stock market. I want you to be in the, in the bank, the national bank, and the gold uh, safe. I want you to see it all because I'm about to take it away. Either let him go or it's gone, number two. Or number three, you think you're having a pleasant stroll? You think you're in charge? You think you're the arbiter of destiny? Kadosh Baruch is in charge and he could take it away from you in a, in a moment. I wanted to really go through all these psukim because there's just, I'll give you two previews where I guess we're going to pick up next year because we did a whopping two psukim this year. So the Kliyakar says, Bezos, with this you know, Kiani Hashem. Why is Hashem, now you know that I'm God. Why is that a concern? Because what was Parah's argument? Parah's argument was, Lo Hashem. When Moshe and Aaron first come, they say, Hi, here's our card, we represent God, we're his lawyers, we're Jewish, we're his lawyers. And Paro says, Jewish God, I don't, the person you represent, I never heard of him, I never met him, I don't know who he is. I'm God, what are you talking about? So the first plague, and he'll know, and he'll know, He says he never met me, he said he doesn't know me, allow me to introduce myself. Allow me to introduce myself. And here's where the Kliyakar, we'll pick up with this Kliyakar, but here's where the Kliyakar, if you want a preview, for Pesach and for your Seder, the next two Kliyakars are all you need. 
Because the next two Kliyakras, he talks about the overall template of the Makos. We have three categories, three, three, and four, like Rabbi Yehuda. When Rabbi Yehuda at the Seder says, the Tzach Bech... Rabbi Yehuda, that's a great, the great Rabbi Yehuda. That's what I needed Rabbi Yehuda for? A little child can make an acronym. Oh, no, no, Rabbi Yehuda has a major contribution to the Seder. Till now, we thought there were ten plagues. Comes along Rabbi Yehuda, and he has a major, major contribution. Biachav, Tetzach, Adash Biachav. What? Big deal, he grouped them in three? That's such a contribution? Kliyakar says, yeah. The three sets of makos each correspond with a, among the three questions or accusations that Paro had. And then the Kliyakar in the next one goes through literally each maka. Tzvardeya, Akinim, Arav. Each maka, what it was meant to teach Paro. The makos are not just so that we have props at the Seder and make it fun again, get the kids back at the table. The makos are a curriculum. They're a pedagogic model how to teach Paro and teach the Jewish people. Hashem says, let me introduce myself. I'm here. I'm involved in your lives. And I'm here to stay. And I want a relationship with you. And I will communicate and teach that through each of the Makos. Mirza Hashem will pick up from here next year.